0: Over the last two months, Michelle and I, my wife, have been to five weddings, three of which were in one week. Now, three weddings in one week is too many weddings. Say no, (laughs) take it from me. Even if they're family, that last one was killer. But anyway, it was lovely to go to weddings. And at weddings, as many of you'll know, there are speeches. And some speeches are fantastic. They make you laugh they make you cry, there is an emotional response, maybe something really heartfelt is said, and you think, isn't that wonderful? This day is so full of love. Some speeches are like that. Other speeches are not so good. And in my humble opinion, I think the worst kind of speech is a speech that doesn't know the target audience. Now, don't want to be too mean on the man here, but I would say, Best men might be the biggest culprit for the the bad speech. You can picture it with me, can't you? We've got the blushing bride and groom. We've got the proudest punch parents. We've got family all in the room. It's a joyful and celebratory atmosphere. And up gets the best man. And in an attempt to be funny, they give a misguided speech that leaves the whole room feeling awkward and uncomfortable. He didn't know or he didn't think about who his target audience is. And that speech, rightly or wrongly, might have gone down well in the locker room, but when it comes to the church or the building full of friends and family, it goes down like a lead balloon. Target audience is everything. Knowing who you're speaking to and giving a speech or a talk or a sermon that is directed to the people in front of you gives you a much greater chance of connecting with your audience. Now you're probably thinking, Andy, why are you giving me the basics to giving a speech? Why, I'm not about to give a speech, you don't need to train me to give a speech. Why are you talking about target audiences? Well, in our story today, Jesus is telling a story and arguably he is telling a story to two different audiences. On one side, we have the sinners and the tax collectors. These guys are considered the bottom of first century society or Jewish society. Uh, And we often jump straight to thieves, murderers, prostitutes when we hear the word sinner. So we jump to that. But actually the Bible, and the Bible does say that Jesus spent time with those people. But in first century Jewish society, to be deemed a sinner was to be deemed unclean. And you could be unclean for something as simple as the profession that you work as. For example, a tanner who turns animal hides into leather would be deemed unclean. Someone who is disabled would be, dis- would be deemed unclean. Somebody with a disfigurement would be deemed unclean. And generally, people who had fallen out of the morally upright, sort of established Jewish society, these people were all deemed unclean but these people were also very very attracted to the person of Jesus on the other side we have the pharisees and the scribes these are the religious leaders of the day they were the keepers of the law many of them were small landowners and were really respected leaders within their communities and these people would go to great lengths to keep themselves clean to keep their status and would often do this by avoiding anyone who was deemed unclean. They would avoid and they would shun those who were unclean. As they believed, if they mixed with these people, that would make them unclean. They believed themselves righteous in God's eyes, and they aren't best pleased with Jesus' teaching. So we've got our two audiences. We've got the sinners, the tax collectors, and we've got the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees are looking for a way to discredit Jesus. They're looking for a way to discredit him, his teachings, his claims. So they're going to try to accuse him of wrongdoing. And so we get to the accusation, looking at verse 2. Also, we did I, I changed up the service uh, format, so if you haven't already, Luke 15 verses 1 to 10 would be really useful if you can get that open in front of you. Um, It was wonderful how to have William and Tom read it for us. But just in case you you missed that part, if you can get that open, it would be very, very helpful. But anyway, looking at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So they're accusing him of something. They're basically accusing him of being unclean. But in response, Jesus tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Or the parable of the lost sons, plural, for those of you who were lucky enough to be here two weeks ago when David Maxwell took us through that parable. In the Bible, Jesus tells all three of these parables together with the intention that they all link together and support the same overall point. But it was decided that we, as a church, should break the passage down into two parts so that we have more time to explore the depths uh, of the passage. So you could, you could even think of these sermons, so today and then two weeks ago, David's sermon, as part one and two of one longer sermon. Although I can't, can't say that I'm evenly yoked in that matchup. Okay, but if you haven't had a chance to go and listen to David's sermon, um, I really, really recommend that you go and listen to it later this week because it will really enhance what you hear this morning. Now, can you see that? Maybe. If you would like to listen to the sermon and you're not aware of how, we, how you can do that, you can visit the website. So uh, just Google Ravenhill Presbyterian Church and it will come up. And there's a We tab that says online. And as soon as you click that tab that says online, there you go. There's the list of sermons. So you can go back and listen to it. It's actually the one at the top. Very convenient for you. No excuses. Um, You can also get them wherever you get your podcasts, if you're a podcast listener, just Raymond Hill Presbyterian. But I would really recommend going back and listening to that, because it will just enhance and um, improve what you're going to hear this morning. So, two weeks ago, David rightly pointed out that all too often, when we come to these parables, they are explained or preached on with the sole focus on the lost And it's not that we can't learn about the lost or we can't learn about Jesus from these parables, but these parables are very clearly told as a response to the Pharisees when they accuse Jesus. Who does the accusation come from? It comes from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the target audience. Okay, so we know who Jesus' target audience is. We know who he's directing these parables at. Let's break down the parables and see what message he had for them. So first we have the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. And I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Well, right off the bat, let me address one common question from this parable. Have the ninety-nine been left in danger? Is this Reckless? Has he prioritised one sheep's safety over the ninety-nine? Well, it would seem strange that an experienced shepherd would do something reckless, which would endanger his main flock. And Jesus uses presumptive, presumptive language when he comes here. What man of you? You could read this as who among you wouldn't? Does not leave and go for the lost sheep." The impression from reading this parable is that it might be common practice to go and find the sheep, you know, the shepherds of the day. So it's probably assumed that the 99 are safe. Or, again, it's a parable, it's a simple story to convey a message. It's not the focus or the point. The 99 are put aside, he's searching for the one. So we'll address that first. Back in 2017, I was in the Welsh countryside, um, staying at a little stone college uh, with a balcony overlooking this beautiful valley. Uh, why was I there? I was At the time I was working for a Christian charity called UCCF, and it was at the end of my year with them, I'd been working with universities. I was helping students with outreach within their university campus. Uh, and this was my final team day. This was a sort of wrap up, reflect on the year kind of time. So we'd been up early for morning prayers, and I was standing on the balcony, bleary eyed, still half asleep, coffee in hand, staring at the valley. And my friend came up sort of beside me and we didn't say anything for a minute. And then he just goes, do you ever find it insulting? And obviously me, clueless, still half asleep, trying to figure out what's going on, uh, gave him a funny look. And he just goes, sheep are such idiots. And then he, then I just, I don't know what the edit said. And then he just goes, I suppose humans can't be too. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think my friend was saying that Jesus is insulting us when he calls us the sheep. Um, but certainly, uh, sorry, don't think he was trying to say that Jesus was insulting us by calling us sheep, but he certainly was correct in one thing. Sheep are not very smart creatures. One of the commentators put it like this, no creature strays more easily than a sheep, none more heedless a nun so incapable of finding its way back to the flock once astray. It will bleed for the flock and still run in the opposite direction to the place where the flock is. This I have often noticed. There is no way for the lost sheep to save themselves. They needed to be saved. The shepherd searches until he finds the sheep, then placing it on his shoulders, he carries it all the way home. Without the shepherd's actions, the sheep is doomed. Then the shepherd overjoyed at finding his lost sheep invites all of his friends and his neighbors round for a big celebration. So what's going on in this parable? Who's who and what's the intended message? Well, let's start with the who's who. First one's easy. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Anyone familiar with the Bible will know that. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the one going out and seeking the lost the lost sheep are the sinners and the tax collectors, the ones who are lost and know it. The Pharisees are the 99. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, okay, Andy, I'm with you with the first two. I'm happy that Jesus is the shepherd. I'm happy that the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners are the lost sheep. But the Pharisees are the 99. Well, just stay with me a second. Jesus ends this parable by directly addressing the Pharisees. Take a look at verse seven with me. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Who are these 99 persons who do not need to repent? We see this in Luke's gospel. We see it crop up a few times. We have this theme of the righteous who do not need Jesus. We have it here in verse 7. We also have it in Luke 5 verse 31. It should be the next slide I think. Maybe, yeah. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. So who are these righteous 99 who don't need repentance or who are these healthy that don't need a doctor? Of course, I think it would be in contradiction to the Bible if we were to say that anyone is righteous or that there are people who don't need to repent or in fact do not need Jesus. So I don't think we can say that Jesus is creating this new category of person who doesn't really need him. Rather, this is a derogatory term. This is about the Pharisees who believe themselves righteous, who believe themselves with no need to repent. And Jesus uses this term to try and humble the Pharisees, to try to point out how foolish it is to believe that. But what is he showing them? Well, he's showing them that, in fact, they are grumbling under the very same circumstances in which heaven is rejoicing. The Pharisees have been given a clear message here. They're at odds with God. Then Jesus tells the next parable, the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels over of angels of God over one sinner who repents. A similar story. The shepherd was interested in one in a hundred. It makes sense that the woman would be interested in one in ten. And again, the presumption is, who wouldn't look for the coin? What woman does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and carefully search? Of course she would do this. Who would lose the coin and then just shrug and say, oh well. Again, the coin Again, the coin has no way of saving itself. It needs to be found, and it needs to be saved. Charles Spurgeon makes a very interesting observation on this passage. The piece of silver was lost, but still claimed. Observe that the woman called the money my piece which was lost. When she lost its possession, she did not lose the right to it. It did not become somebody else's when it slipped out of her hand And fell on the floor. The lost belong to God, whether they know it or not. God has the right to go and claim them. And again, Jesus ends this parable with a direct and rather cutting remark towards the Pharisees. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels—sorry, in the presence of the angels of God—over one sinner who repents. The angels are joyfully celebrating while you stand here and grumble. We don't often think of God as rejoicing, but this passage tells us that he does, and it tells us in what circumstances that he does. We see this in Isaiah 62:5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus goes on to tell a third and final parable for which you will have to go and listen to David's sermon. A lot of David's conclusions can be applied to these parables as well, so it's well worth a listen. But what is the message Jesus is communicating to his listeners from these parables? Well, I think it's a clear and direct rebuke to the Pharisees. It also conveys a wider message. All of you are sinful, all of you are lost. The Pharisees are just as sinful as the, as the sinners, just in different ways. i recently read the book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by Tyler Staten, and I cannot recommend it enough. And in that book, he puts forward four categories for sin. Now, for the sake of the PowerPoint, I have simplified them. You will have to go to the book to find the, the full depth, but just to keep it fairly simple. So he has these four categories of sin. He has blatant sin, universally recognized by both secular culture and the kingdom of God slash church. And this is things like murder and theft, you know, Our, the secular uh, culture, they would agree those are bad things, as would we in the church. The next one is deliberate sin, okay? Outward behaviors, Recognized by the church or the kingdom of God, but not recognized by secular culture. This could be things like sex outside of marriage or drinking to excess. We then have unconscious sin. Thought patterns that lead to expressed sin. These sin patterns often live so deep below the surface that, it's, that only by intentional self-reflection can they be uncovered. An example of this might be prioritizing productivity or programs over people or defining yourself by success or accomplishments of status. The final category that Tyler lays out is inner orientations. Sin at its deepest and most hidden is a disordered trust structure. Where are you placing your trust? Behavior effortlessly and often destructively flows out from there. This could be trusting in yourself, trusting in money, trusting in power, to name a few. Now obviously, like I said, I've simplified those. I would really encourage you to go and read them in their full. But these four categories that Tyler lays out, I think could be helpful for breaking down the two audiences Jesus has. We have the tax collectors and the sinners, I think they most clearly lie in the first two, blatant and deliberate. There is no hiding it. Their sin is out there to be seen. So the Pharisees look down at them with disgust, avoid them, shun them, stop them from coming to the temple or taking part in any religious practices. But the Pharisees, I believe, are falling into the other two categories. The Pharisees are guilty of unconscious sin. They take such pride in their status and keeping themselves clean that they are unwilling to help the lost. And ultimately, the Pharisees are trusting that through their hard work, they will be accepted as righteous by God. And this trust in themselves has the outworking of judgment and condemnation of others. The second two categories, in many ways, are the more dangerous of the four. Much harder to spot, much harder to stop, and just as damaging to us. In preparing for this sermon and reading monks, Praying Like Monks, I found this section particularly challenging. Where am I placing my trust? What thought patterns are left unchecked in my life? I'll finish with this. The good news of these parables is, parables is that there is hope for the lost. Neither the coin nor the sheep could save themselves or find themselves. Jesus has done the work for us by dying on the cross and bring, bringing us into right relationship with the Father. So that if we repent and believe We can be heirs with Jesus. But he didn't just stop there. He sent his spirit to help us. To convict us of our sins, known and unknown. And to help us to not become like the Pharisees. But to live like Jesus and seek out the lost. Let us pray. Father, too often we ignore the sin in our lives. Or we downplay it. Father, help us as we grow and mature as Christians to seek out and expel sin from our lives that you may sanctify us forever. And Father, give us hearts to seek out the lost in our society, whoever they may be and whatever they may have done. Let us be people who rejoice when sinners are saved. In your name we pray. Amen.